Turkey Call All Access, the official podcast of the National Wild Turkey Federation, brought to you by Tetra Hearing. Turkey Call All Access is a digital campfire where we discuss topics of the day, conservation efforts, tips and techniques to better your experience in the field, and our members' stories. Welcome back to another episode of the Turkey Call All Access podcast. Today, we're talking with Allison Schumacher and Derek Alkire about drones. We'll get into that in 90 seconds. Under the visionary leadership of founder Johnny Morris, Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's is leading North America's largest conservation movement. Their partnership with the National Wild Turkey Federation is a match made in heaven for hunters across America. The Save the Habitat, Save the Hunt initiative continues to be a resounding success, with more than $6 million provided for conserving wildlife habitat, recruiting more hunters, and opening more access to hundreds of thousands of acres across the nation. To learn more, go to BassPro.com conservation. Hey guys, this is Aaron with The Hunting Public. Each spring we head to the woods chasing turkeys, and one overlooked product that we use religiously is Sawyer permethrin. We've used it for years to keep ticks off of us, and it's worked extremely well. We don't like messing around with Lyme disease, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, anything like that. So I would highly recommend, if you're a spring turkey hunter, spending any time in warmer climates in the outdoors to use Sawyer permethrin. Learn about their advanced insect repellents and family of technical lightweight water filters at Sawyer.com. Hey y'all, I'm Jason Hart, founder of Nomad Hunting Clothing. Nomad is proud to be a supporting sponsor of the National Wild Turkey Federation. At Nomad, we're bringing simplicity and authenticity back to hunting. Whether you hunt to escape your hectic work life, for locally sourced organic meat, or to socialize with friends, to uphold your favorite family traditions, we're with you and we do the same. At Nomad, we understand your gears and investments, so our products are engineered and priced for every hunter, tested in the real world, and designed to last. Hunting is in all of us. Nomad is with you. So we're here with Derek Alkire and Allison Schumacher, and today we're going to be talking about drones in conservation. Um, this is a topic that's really exciting. It's kind of at the cutting edge of conservation science and technology. Um, obviously, drones have been around for a little while now, um, but we're just sort of beginning to see all of the potential uses for them Um in the conservation world as, as well as other commercial applications. Um, so I guess to kick things off, Derek, if you could tell us about yourself, what you do with the NWTF um, and give us uh, an interesting fact about yourself. Sure. Thanks Gilbert. We'll see how interesting that is, but um, my name is Derek Alkire. I'm the district biologist for NWTF uh, covering the states of Alabama, Tennessee and Kentucky. I actually live in Mississippi uh, as well, so I've been involved with a lot of things here too. Um, I don't know about interesting facts. Uh, you know, my wife and I are foster parents, and we just adopted our first child, which is really cool. So we're excited about that, and um, glad to be a part of this conversation. You know. It was my idea to bring up drones in conservation, and I'm not a drone expert. We just happened to have a project using the drone, and I thought, hey, that'd be a good idea. And here I am on a podcast. Go figure. So um, be careful what you wish for in some cases, but uh, <laughs> I'm glad to be a part of this conversation. Yeah, and congratulations, by the way. That's awesome. Thank you. Um, Allison, if you want to give us the spiel, same thing. Who are you? Where are you from? 
um, and something people may not know about you. Uh, yeah, thanks. Um, so I am a master's student at the University of Missouri. Uh, my research project is looking at the application of drones and thermal imagery to survey wild turkey populations. Um, so that's kind of what I spend my day to day doing is uh, working on that right now. A lot of data analysis. Um, fun fact. Usually my fun fact is that I spy on sleeping turkeys with drones, um, but that's what we're talking about. So uh, I guess I, a cool fun fact is that I went to film school actually for a year and a half before I decided to go and study wildlife. So I imagine that the uh, the drone cameras are, are not quite uh, what you would call like cinema glass but <laughs> not quite, especially not the uh, thermal thermal cameras. They're pretty low quality, but <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, very not, cool. Not yet, Gilbert. Allison is about to bring that, you know, that's next podcast. There we go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, have you guys seen there is a um, this is completely off topic, but there is um, a documentary that recently came out on Netflix where um, a film crew, I think they spent 400 days videoing um the this particular group of apes in it's in some super remote area but it's super cool and one of the most amazing like pieces of wildlife videography i've seen i have not seen that that sounds like something i would want to watch though (laughs) yeah well i guess free plug for that show i can't remember what it's called i want to say it's like chimp kingdom or something like that but if you you know pull up netflix it's it's on there um, but anyways, diverging off of that, um, I guess let's start start with Derek. Um, people have seen Allison before um, and kind of, we've touched just a little bit um, on our social media feed on some of the work that she's been involved with. Um, so, Derek, uh, can you give me the, the basic rundown of the drone project that you were involved in and maybe a little bit on, on how it came to be, how we got the idea to even use drones in the first place. Sure. Um, And I may expand on that even a little more because what I realized on this project is NWTF had already been working with drones. I just wasn't necessarily aware of it. Um, Mm. So the project that we're working on is in Western Tennessee and it's utilizing a drone for aerial herbicide application. Um, this is an aerial herbicide of exotics in most cases, but there are some species that are just more of an invasive species um, mm-hmm. that are overtaking. In this area, it's a lot of um, bottomland hardwood that have been replanted in oaks. So we're trying to manage for the oak force that will benefit mm-hmm. turkeys. Right now, there's a lot of their younger and early successional habitat in there, but as they get older, they'll provide more of a food source or acorn crops and things like that. Um, But because it's in a bottomland hardwood setting and you're not spraying an entire stand, um, the drone really is effective at spot spraying some of these spots out in there. So there may be a, a, a bunch of tallow tree or Kogan grass or something like that that gets in there that is the drone can go in and spray. The other advantage to the drone in this particular project is that the area is not easily accessible. 
Um, mm. One, because if it's bottomland hardwood in the Mississippi alluvial valley of Tennessee and it floods. So, you know, just accessing some of these places is very difficult to do. And the drone has really allowed us to get back in there um, to get some of those spots. And just for reference, that project has not started yet. That's scheduled. Uh, the spraying will occur right before fall, right before things go dormant to get the uh, mm. most efficacy of the project um, and the application. So we're really looking forward to that. And, you know, the drone we talked about allows us to access places better, but it's also cheaper because um, you don't have to have a manned aircraft, which is what normally would be used in, in something like that. Um, and because of that, it's also safer, you know, for um, individuals that are applying herbicide and those type of things. And what I learned through this project is that the NWTF actually in the state of Georgia, through the Georgia state chapter, helped the Forestry Commission purchase a drone um, mm. that they use for a variety of different things. Some of those um, may be herbicide, and I can't speak to specific projects, but herbicide application and prescribed burning, which I know is really catching on from a, a drone. One, because of the ability to get into those remote areas that we talked about, but you can burn a lot more acreage um, and get a lot more fire on the ground Whereas before you may have had to wait on a helicopter or rely on multiple people on the ground crew or something like that. So we're really seeing within NWTF multiple uses of drones um, and really just getting started. I think there's a lot of interest in other types of projects. So walk me through like the, the strategy on where is the drone flying? Is it above the canopy when it's spraying? Is it getting down below the canopy um, how far from those areas are you flying it? Uh, do you have to be like relatively close or what's, what does that sort of look like? I can't answer that question for all drones, but for the drones that we are specifically using on these projects, um, they're in a, basically we're just in a field um, and the drone takes off. Actually, I, the thing is going to take off from the back of a truck, but um, in a field area that's within half a mile, um, maybe a little farther at the farthest point of the areas that we're wanting to spray. Um, I do know that there are drones that can go a lot farther than that, but in this instance, that's kind of what we're doing. And they are, they're programmed um, with coordinates in the drone. Mm. So they know exactly where they're headed uh, and where to spray. And, you know, they're flying above the canopy, but keep in mind, most of these trees are younger. So canopy is, you know, 15 feet, <laughs> 20 mm -hmm. feet or something like that. They're not real tall. So they're just right above the canopy uh, and spraying in these areas. Mm, so you guys don't have to do like race drone practice where you're <laughs> flying in between <laughs> trees and stuff. <laughs> no, thank goodness that is not the case. And, you know, even when they're thinking about using drones for prescribed fire, it, it, they're typically right above the canopy, you know, we, you're not trying to get way up there and those type of things, especially when you think about an herbicide, you know, the lower to the ground, the better when you think about drift and those mm -hmm. type of things so that you make sure you're spraying where, where you want to spray. You know, you still have to be careful with those things, thinking about what's the wind during that day, trying to make sure that you have the appropriate conditions for 
um, to get the desired result. Yeah. I mean, I could see like so many applications for that. Like for us in Missouri, one of the biggest invasive species issues is bush honeysuckle and you get these just giant stands of it and, you know, doing some sort of foliar spray or, or whatever, like with a backpack, you know, is not, it's, it's much more labor intensive, but also presents a, a lot more concern from like a exposure to, to herbicides, you know, if you're the person applying it or, or whatnot. And that um, is, I guess when, when that idea was coming about, um, was that uh, some of the safety considerations um, and maybe some of the manpower considerations was, was that one of the, the big motivators for going towards drones versus just trying to get in there somehow and do it? Yeah, I think uh, the main thing was accessibility. So, you know, how do we get back into these places? And then it was cost. You know, how do we do this with the resources that we have? And then it was manpower. Um, and you think about aerial application, especially. Um, and in this case, we're working with a, a state agency and, and most of the work is done via contract and those type of things. So actually getting a helicopter out there you you may not know when you're going to get it. You know, mm. we work with the Forest Service in many cases, and they only have a, a couple helicopters that they can use. So, you know, if you're not on the schedule, you're not getting it done. And you may miss an opportunity to get a project done because a lot of the things that we're doing in conservation are very time sensitive um, if you want to get the, the results. Um, so that was kind of the impetus behind it was, hey, we don't have a lot of people here. How do we get achieve the results on the ground to better the habitat? Um, in this case, specifically for wild turkeys, but it's going to benefit a, a whole slew of other species um, as well. So that's kind of the conversations that were had of of why we needed to go this route. Mm. And before we uh, jump over to Allison, um, I wanted to to ask too. So the, as far as the timing goes, you mentioned it's it's before fall. Um, why that time, uh, you know, versus other times? Sure. So um, most of the, well, I guess all in this case of the, the things that we are spraying for are, are deciduous in nature. So they get, they go dormant in the fall and the winter of the year. So if you spray them right before they go dormant, essentially that herbicide gets on the leaves and is sucked down into the roots. So mm. it's now, the plant itself is pulling all of its resources into the roots to go into this dormant stage. And when it does that, if you spray right before it goes into dormancy, it is now pulling that herbicide in there and you get better effectiveness. Whereas if you were mm -hmm. to do that, say earlier in the year when it's still growing, and this is highly dependent on what you're spraying and what you're spraying for, but um, earlier in the year, it's just kind of cycling through the plant, you know, it's pulled down into the roots and then resources are kind of uh, sent back up to help the, the plant grow. But in this case, they're all put down into the root, which actually helps with the efficacy of the herbicide application. Mm, gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so I guess, Allison, why don't you uh, give us that, that same sort of overview of um, the project that you've been involved in 
you know, talk about some of the AI work that, that you have been doing with that project. Um, that would be awesome. Yeah. So, um, as I said, in kind of general terms, um, I'm looking at using a drone with a thermal camera to survey wild turkeys. Um, I'm also working with computer science students at the University of Missouri to generate an algorithm that will automatically detect the birds from the thermal video. I guess I could kind of describe what that looks like in the field. Um, mm -hmm. My field work. So I would trap turkeys, put transmitters on turkeys, and then track them in the evening when they're getting ready to settle in their roost. Uh, and uh, kind of keep an eye on them. Then I have uh, GPS transmitters on them so I can grab their exact location and program drone flights to fly over them in kind of like an X pattern. So it would pass over that single turkey um, four times as it kind of makes that X around it. And it would go like 100 meters on each side of the bird. And then I'll fly one hour after sunset and then six hours after sunset. And that's kind of to get different environmental conditions, different weather, temperature, humidity, to then see how that affects the thermal video quality. It, to sort of, for people who have maybe haven't read the article or didn't see the social media post, um, what is the study trying to accomplish? Um, yeah, well, I guess we'll just start there because there's there's like all sorts of little details we can sort of get into. Yeah. So uh, currently with uh, monitoring wild turkey populations, there's not a uh, widely accepted method for estimating population size. Uh, mostly what's used right now is like hunting indices and um, some other methods of actually obtaining population counts, but most of them are not scalable to large areas, which is really what uh, wildlife managers are interested in. Um, so we're hoping that this will be used as a, you know, new method to get population counts for turkeys. And so I guess to, to diverge real quick, um, Derek, feel free to chime in on this. Um, what were sort of historically, um, you, you mentioned like hunter harvest is, is a way that populations have been estimated in the past. What, what are the, the, the sort of historical ways, um, that they've been estimated and sort of what maybe the limitations get into some of the limitations of, of those, those methods and, and why we're looking for, um, new methods. I feel like you can speak better to the, uh, what's actually going on in, you know, biology. <laughs> well, I'll do my best here. And, you know, um, so I'll try to reframe your question and then start here, Gilbert, is that, um, you know, what are the, some of the methods currently being used to estimate wild turkey populations and, and why those have been used and maybe where are we going? Um, you mentioned hunting and um, harvest estimates, and that is that's it. That's really the main thing that's going on there. You know, um, some of those estimates from a harvest standpoint, um, depending on the state anyway, you can get a harvest estimate by a mandatory check 
um, requirement where if you harvest a bird, you have to enter it into an online system or back in the day, you had to take it to a gas station or an official check station. I'm not sure that those exist too much anymore. Um, Most of it's online. But in states that don't necessarily have a mandatory check, or even in the ones that do, there's also a mail survey. So Mm -hmm. they'll send out um, a survey to X percent of license holders, and they'll ask them, how many birds did you harvest in several of those things? And essentially, they'll utilize that data and extrapolate that to the overall state or the overall hunting population so there's a a lot of um wiggle room in there um but you know i would i would say and i will not speak for turkey managers and and folks like that but one of the values of that data is trend data so when you think about it from a a population level whether the population is forty thousand birds or 42,000 birds eh, doesn't matter at the end of the day you know who knows but if it's 40,000 birds in one year and then you do the same survey again and again and again and five years later it's 20,000 birds well now Hmm. all of a sudden you get you start to see a trend in the population so you know I would encourage folks that when you think about population data we're thinking more about trends of the population than we are a static individual number. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that I will say is what Allison's doing is awesome. Um, and I really hope that there's a lot of success here. And I think Allison, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but this is being done with R- the Rio subspecies, which is, um, you know, a little bit different and where they roost and those type of things. When you think about it, they don't, not necessarily as spread out as the Easterns. So I'm interested to see where it can go. But there's also the uh, the only other form that I know of going on right now is Mississippi State is looking at utilizing DNA, trying to get population estimates there through SCAT and those type of things and running grids and um, just trying to figure out a different way to look at population estimates. And so I guess sort of um, one of the big questions with the um, the use of like hunter data is how do they sort of ha- have they adjusted the models to account for um, hunter participation or uh, things like um, do, do they look at things like like habitat destruction or places that maybe used to be um, rural that have transitioned to suburban or, um, you know, have been developed for other reasons. Is that sort of, does that influence the model at all? Or is it pretty much, or does it not change that much according to those factors? Well, that's, that's an interesting question. One that maybe I, we'll see if we can answer that. I think the short <laughs> answer is, uh, no, those those factors do not influence trying to come up with a population um, utilizing these, these methods, you know, it's simply hunter harvest, you know, and there's a lot of things in there. You think about license holders. Well, a lot of States in, if you're a military veteran or you're of a certain age or you're youth, you don't have to buy a license. So 
you know, there are certainly factors in there to get at what is our overall number of turkey hunters and then what is that harvest. Now, I think what you mentioned about uh, urbanization and loss of habitat and those type of things really comes into play with the interpretation of what that number means. So, mm. um, you know, 40,000, I, I don't know why I'm using 40,000 turkeys that just came <laughs> to my head and I will just stay consistent with it because um, I'm sure most states have way more than that. Um, shoot, some states harvest that many. But when you think about um, that number, you know, 40,000 acres at a statewide perspective, um, the state of Alabama, for instance, is, you know, that means one thing. All of a sudden, you put 40,000 turkeys in, you know, Delaware, that's, you know, a smaller area. Well, that means something totally different. And I think that's the thing that we need to look at when we talk about these populations. We talked about looking at trends. You know, does a negative trend mean that you have an unhealthy population? Well, maybe not. If their habitat is going down as well, the population can be doing well. There's just not as many of them because there's not as many places for them to be. So mm. that information doesn't necessarily go into the algorithm of, harvest indices and those type of things because the other thing i will say is that when you talk about turkey populations that's almost not talked about at this point it's not really um, a number or anything that people worry about it's what we're concerned with is recruitment so your poult per hens like how many more turkeys are we making and then there's been um several efforts recently to get an effort. So how many days or how much effort did it take to harvest that many birds? And that could give you an idea of the health of the population as well. So like I say, I, at this point, until Allison breaks the world here and changes the game for everybody, the overall number is not, in, not as talked about. Um, because we don't have a great way to get there. It's more of what do these other indices tell us that can describe the population. And that's what, not to keep rambling here, but that's what makes turkey management so hard is you're managing mm. for a species that you have no clue how many of them are out there. Um, and that's, that's tough. Under the visionary leadership of founder Johnny Morris, Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's is leading North America's largest conservation movement. Their partnership with the National Wild Turkey Federation is a match made in heaven for hunters across America. The Save the Habitat, Save the Hunt initiative continues to be a resounding success, with more than $6 million provided for conserving wildlife habitat, recruiting more hunters, and opening more access to hundreds of thousands of acres across the nation. To learn more, go to BassPro.com conservation. Hey guys, this is Aaron with The Hunting Public. Each spring we head to the woods chasing turkeys and one overlooked product that we use religiously is Sawyer permethrin. We've used it for years to keep ticks off of us and it's worked extremely well. We don't like messing around with Lyme disease, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, anything like that. So I would highly recommend if you're a spring turkey hunter spending any time in warmer climates in the outdoors to use Sawyer permethrin. Learn about their advanced insect repellents and family of technical lightweight water filters at Sawyer.com. 
Hey y'all, I'm Jason Hart, founder of Nomad Hunting Clothing. Nomad is proud to be a supporting sponsor of the National Wild Turkey Federation. At Nomad, we're bringing simplicity and authenticity back to hunting. Whether you hunt to escape your hectic work life, for locally sourced organic meat, or to socialize with friends, to uphold your favorite family traditions, we're with you and we do the same. At Nomad, we understand your gears and investments, so our products are engineered and priced for every hunter, tested in the real world, and designed to last. Hunting is in all of us. Nomad is with you. Mm. So, Allison, I guess um, to to get back into uh, your your project um, for I guess for people who don't aren't familiar with it, it's uh, the main goal of it is is counting turkeys using infrared footage when they've roosted um, and and getting that footage via drones. Um, so, and that's a, a that particular project was a partnership between the university of Missouri and the Texas um, parks and wildlife parks and wildlife department. I can't ever, it's like fishing game. There's like a hundred different names. Um, but so why, I guess why Texas, um, how did, how did that partnership come to be? Um, and, and maybe, well, I guess we'll, we'll start there. And then, then there are some other things I want to talk about, like um, some of the like the ideal distance from the canopy. Um, what, if any, response turkeys have to the presence of drones, things like that. Yes. Yeah, so the the main connection was definitely uh, happened before I was part of the project. Um, so uh, I could be totally wrong on this, but I believe that Texas Parks and Wildlife was interested in uh, having this research done. Um, I believe that they reached out to my advisor uh, to Hmm. potentially have him have a grad student do it. Um, And then my advisor looked for a grad student and found me. (laughs) So that's kind of how I came into the project. But I know that that connection was already um, had already begun before I got on the project. And they had also completed kind of like a pilot season um, back in 2019. I started on the project in uh, fall of 2020. So they had done um, a small pilot season where they just kind of took the drone and flew it over some known roost locations uh, to see if you could even see a turkey in thermal video. Um, I think they looked at the different speeds that you could fly the drone and if that uh, made any noticeable differences. They looked at different heights um, and then different times of night to see if that made any difference. Um, And I think they concluded that like two meters per second was a good speed to fly at. You could still see them at faster speeds, but um, it was easier to differentiate individual turkeys at those lower speeds. Can you convert that to miles per hour, roughly? Is that like? I don't know. It's pretty slow. I don't really know what that is. Miles per hour. You'll hear me talking about meters because you know that's what we do our science publications in. Um, I'm gonna have to be converting things on my phone while here. listening. I know. I'm like doing it. Okay, four miles an hour. Okay, that's like not two meters per second. Not super slow. No, I guess it's not. It's it. It looks slower when you're watching the video, and you're like, "All right, come on, drone, like get past the birds." But um, so yeah, that that would be. Um, I flew at two meters per second, so four miles an hour, about. Um, and then I also fly 
30 meters above the canopy. Again, I'm like, I don't, I don't know what that is in feet, but <laughs> I guess how did they, so 30 meters above the canopy, how did they come to why that distance um, versus higher or lower? Yeah. So in 2019, when they were kind of just testing some of this out, they looked at um, some different heights. I don't remember each individual height that they tried out, but um, they thought that the 30 meters above the canopy provided a good trade-off between being able to see um, more turkeys and more area covered um, and then still getting a good enough like detail in the quality of the video so that you could still differentiate individual turkeys and and you know see them at a decent quality but still being able to see enough area covered. Mm. And for those of you wondering, it is about 98 feet is the <laughs> conversion on that. So that's actually kind of, that's pretty high. You know, yeah, and then, feet. so that's above the forest canopy. So depending on how, how tall those trees are, um, you know, you might be up 200 meter or 200 feet in mm-hmm. the air. Was there, is there any sort of like, like airspace concerns that you have to address when doing those kind of surveys. Like, I don't know what, what the rules are surrounding drones um, and kind of where you're allowed to fly them, how high, how low. Yes, there is. There is a lot of rules that I should probably have uh, memorized, but um, I did take my training. I have my pilot license, (laughs) Um, but I think, it wasn't much of a concern. I think the like highest you can fly is way higher than I would be flying. So it wasn't mm. too big of a concern there. The only thing that I would be worried about was like being near structures or power lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just being aware of, you know, I was flying in rural Texas. So sometimes in the evenings you would see like a low flying aircraft that's not like registered on the app. Oh. Um, just someone maybe flying like a personal plane or something like that. So just, you know, having your line of sight to your drone and making sure that you're out of the way if that plane looks like it's coming your way, which did happen a few times. And I was like, I think that I should land my drone. I don't know where that plane's going, <laughs> but and wow, it's in the middle of the night. So I don't, I don't know, judging a distance of a large aircraft towards my little drone is hard to do in the middle of the night. So. Yeah. Do you have, is there like a light or anything on your drone that would alert people to its presence? Yeah. So in order to, to fly drones at night, like with the the FAA rules, you have to have a like kind of flashing strobe light on the drone. Mm. Um, And then the drones also have their like red and green, just lights that they have normally on. But to fly at night, you have to have a separate strobe light. Mm, Gotcha. And so what was, I guess, um, they obviously chose that distance um, because they didn't want want the drone to be unroosting any birds. Um, What was, did they exhibit any sort of response or um, did it seem to to alter their their behavior in any way? Uh, For the most part, no. Um, I would say the majority of flight side the birds were just sleeping or hanging out in their trees um not really doing anything occasionally um i was usually fairly close to the roosts um on the ground so occasionally i would hear some gobbling 
uh, when the drone was over them or could see them moving a little bit in the trees, but they never like got up and flew away or anything like that. So just maybe kind of like, oh, what's that going on above my head while I'm trying to sleep or something like that, but not, not too much of a reaction. And then, so once you have the footage itself, um, you are then putting it through an algorithm that's helping you um, actually count the thermal marks of, of turkeys. How does that, how does that process work? Like, um, and I guess sort of what, what are the benefits of, of that versus having a biologist sit down uh, and, and count them by combing through footage? Yeah. So, well, the benefit is pretty much what you just said is uh, being able to just, you know, have someone put the video through the algorithm, come back, however long it took to run through sometime, depending on the length of them could be anywhere from like five minutes to 45 minutes. Um, so a biologist can, you know, go and throw the videos into the algorithm, come back later in the day after they're doing their other duties um, and see how many turkeys were in that video. Um, and they might still have to, you know, review it a little bit just to make sure that there's not any like glaring errors that the algorithm is producing, but they're not having to sit there and count each individual turkey um, of hours and hours of footage potentially. Um, And so kind of the process that I had to go through and I'll tell you how awful it is to count every Turkey because I had to (laughs) go through all my videos first and individually circle every single turkey in every video that i had um and that uh created kind of like training videos for Mm. the algorithm so i had to go through mark all those turkeys and then we provided the, the algorithm you know a certain percentage of those videos as training and then would test it on remaining videos um and then now that i have kind of a complete version of the algorithm we are we're still working with them to make improvements but at least for my project it's uh, a complete version and i'm now putting every single video through it to see what it comes out with um but going through every video and counting every turkey is not fun (laughs) how much how much footage are we talking about is this like hours of footage or like what's the probably um so i have like eight videos a night and they're all about um, five minutes long. And then I have uh, probably like 30 nights that I flew. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if anyone wants to do the math. That, <laughs> yeah, that adds up. I'm trying and to... then, and you know, it's not like you can just quickly, you know, run through that five minute video and you have a number. Like sometimes I would have to go back and, recount that video multiple times before I could actually like come out with a a pretty confident number there, especially in areas where, um, you know, there's a hundred birds roosting Mm -hmm. in a video and it, you know, it takes a long time to come up with that number and make sure you're not missing any that 
go across the little corner of your screen or something like that. So. Mm. If I if my calculations are right, which they may not be because I was an English major, <laughs> but it'd be around 20 hours of footage, which is a lot of footage. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> a question a question that, that came to mind, too, on that is um, what are you having to sort of sort through other species of birds like are you getting turkey vultures or eagles or other large birds uh, as sort of like false counts in the data and like do are you having to sort of look at how certain marks work and differentiate them from what a turkey mark would appear yeah so the one thing that we are concerned with um mistaking as turkeys would be vultures either turkey vultures or black vultures um so kind of to back up and describe to you what a turkey looks like in thermal video, you basically just see their heads. So they have, you know, their little oh. featherless heads um, and those show up as like hot spots. And the, the color palette that I use for my thermal video is the white is hot and then black is cold. Mm. Um, so basically the turkeys just show up as sometimes you can see like a black body, but really you're seeing this white head. Um, and so vultures having similar anatomy, uh, they show up the same way in thermal video. And mm. so to kind of see if there's any differences, I also um, just visually tracked vultures and found their roosts in the evenings and flew over them. Um Mm -hmm. to kind of see if humans can differentiate between the two and then also if the algorithm can differentiate between the two. Um, they look pretty much exactly the same. So <laughs> that's definitely going to be probably an issue going forward. Uh, and I'm not 100% sure on their roost locations. I don't know if they have ever been seen roosting, you know, in the same tree or within like a super close distance to each other uh, that hasn't been documented in any sort of like scientific publication right now. Um, mm -hmm. I would see them, you know, on, so I'd be working on like a WMA and they may be like a few miles away from each other. Mm -hmm. uh, but it seemed like it was mostly like a communal vulture roost and then the turkeys were elsewhere. So yeah. maybe it'll just be something like biologists kind of have an idea of where the vultures are and, and know if they fly over that and see a bunch of what appears to be a turkey. Maybe it's actually a vulture. Um, other than vultures, there's not really other birds or animals that look the same as turkeys mm. so that would kind of be the only the only other animal that might look like a turkey so like with eagles or other large birds it, it's the the feathers on their head that basically prevents you from seeing them in the same way yep wow that's kind of a fortuitous uh <laughs> coincidence i suppose yeah it works out and i think that's kind of why they decided to try it out because i mean if if turkeys didn't have that featherless head you might not see them at all in thermal video mm. and i guess that this may end up being a uh that's like an interesting wrinkle in the in that sort of studies we may end up learning a lot more about the roosting behaviors of 
turkey vultures and other turkeys than intended <laughs> just as a necessity of trying to sort out accurate data. Yeah, and I know a lot of the times like vultures will be roosting on like uh, power lines or those mm. giant like cell towers. Oh yeah. They like, you know, out there with their wings out doing their whole whatever yeah. that is. <laughs> Did you have a question, Derek? Well, I was just going to ask Allison, um, and maybe this is a, a not a very bright question based on what you just said, but I assume that you cannot differentiate between a male and a female turkey thinking about sex ratios and those type of things. Uh, probably not. I mean, you know, they do have, they are a little bit different size, but thinking about just a turkey that could be higher up in a tree or lower in a tree, I don't think that you could say that, you know, a bigger one is a male and a smaller one is a female. Mm. Um, and that's because yeah, it may, that. it may be distorted based on how close it is to the drone. Yeah, yeah. So a, a turkey, you know, roosting higher up in a tree is going to look bigger than a turkey lower in a tree. So, and then, you know, it's hard. You can't really tell from that video how high up the turkeys are. Hmm. So I don't think that you would be able to accurately make any sort of assessment on male to female ratio. Okay. And what is the sort of, um, I guess... Ha, has the that method been used um, when it's not in conjunction with GPS tracking? Like, have the free cast in an area just kind of having knowing there are turkeys in the area versus having like a, a, a particular this bird is roosting in this area. So we're going to go check it. I have not done anything like that. Um, kind of unofficially Texas Parks and Wildlife since my last field season, which ended last spring, um, they've taken the drone out and done exactly that, just kind of flown in areas where they know birds are roosting and um, sent me that video. Um, and I've recently started putting that through the algorithm that we have so far. Um, and it is picking them up and I can see them too. So they, they kind of are starting to test out actually using it in the fields without GPS birds. Cool. Something I wanted to circle back on from earlier with, with your project, Derek, um, is talking about the prescribed fire. Um, and you know, we've, we've put out, uh, some articles that are, you know, about the U S forest service using, uh, mechanisms like, like what they call dragon eggs and things like that. What is, what are the mechanisms when they're doing prescribed fire with a drone? You know, I, I don't imagine it has just like a drip torch or maybe it does. That's, you know, how, how is it performing prescribed fire? Um, is it different than somebody walking around with a, a drip torch or like those dragon eggs that they drop from helicopters? Uh, it's the same as those dragon eggs, it, you know, ping pong balls that they can be referred to as different things, but essentially that's what it's doing is, is, it's dropping a, a ball that is not flammable as it's dropped, but when it lands, it breaks apart and what it, the contents of that then mix and they cause a flame. So, you know, it's not, mm. it's not a drip torch that would be going through the canopy or something like that. Burning <laughs> trees and stuff. It's, a, it's those ping pong balls that are being dropped at certain intervals. Um, 
pretty much exactly like they would uh, utilize in a helicopter. Okay, so yeah, so we're not napalming um, the forest. No. <laughs> no. No. Uh, what is the sort of when when they're using like a, a drone? What's the sort of like size? The acreage are they looking to burn um, when when they're doing those? So it depends on the management objective of the burn. Um, you know, so I'm not going to be able to give you an exact number on that. But what I will say is. What the drone allows you to do um, is because you don't have as much manpower needed and those type of things is to burn smaller acreages at a time or larger mm. acres if you wanted to. But from a from a turkey perspective, we're looking for opportunities to get more fire on the ground from an overall perspective, but the individual burns themselves making them smaller in nature so that they're more usable for wild turkeys or uh, bobwhite quail or those type of things. So, you know, now utilizing a drone, you can have crews on, you still have to have your crews on the ground and those type of things just for safety perspective and to manage Mm -hmm. fire and jump spots that are jumping and those type of things. Um, but you can move that drone around very easily to different spots and you can go around, a, you know, you can burn 100 acres or 40 acres and you can burn several of those as opposed to one 2000 acre block. So mm. um, I think that the drone really opens up opportunity um, to change some of those fire regimes that might more benefit wildlife. Um The other side to that is the reality in some cases is some burning is not done for wildlife. You know, it's done for wildfire mitigation, um, wildfire reduction, those type of things. So in those cases, you know, those larger burns, although maybe not the best for a wildlife species, are hitting other objectives for resilient communities and firewise communities and those type of things. So the drone can do either one, but I think what it does is it opens up opportunities that you can tailor your burning to what you're trying to achieve. Mm, gotcha. Um, I guess uh, sort of sort of to, to wrap things up, if you guys could give if you had to give like a crystal ball prediction of when these technologies uh, are going to be more widely adopted in agencies and, and, and wildlife work in general, um, you think it's like five years, 10 years? Uh, Is there a sort of uh, like, I, I suppose what's, what is the feeling that you're getting as far as like receptivity to these these methods um, from from agencies? Well, from my perspective, I think that the answer is now. You know, there's agencies that are already own their own drones. Um, there are agencies that are looking to purchase drones. Um, there's a training associated with that. I think Allison mentioned she had gone through the course and training. You know, the, then the question becomes for an agency, is it more conducive? Is it um, a better use of dollars to contract that out to folks? Or is mm. it um, better to have somebody on staff that can use drones for, for other things? Because, you know, we're, we're just talking about it from a conservation perspective here, but, 
you know, there's the law enforcement side of things that we haven't really talked about that an agency might want to consider as well when utilizing drones. So there's a lot of different uses for them. But I think the time is already here when they're thinking about what those opportunities look like. Um, and I will add this that you can chop out of the video as you wish that um, there are also some other things at play here when you think about um, aviation in general. For example, mm -hmm. the Department of Justice has come out with some language that says that drones um, who have parts that are made in countries of foreign adversary, um, and that may not be the exact word on that, um, but you're not allowed to use those, uh, especially mm -hmm. if there's federal funding tied to that. So our project in Tennessee, that happened. We had a contractor that was lined up, but he happened to have a drone that had parts that were made in one of those countries, and therefore he wasn't allowed to use it on the public land. So we had to find someone that had fully American-made parts, um, which is not a bad thing. I'm not saying that as a bad thing, but it's just, um, it's different because many of the drones have parts from other countries. So, um, you know, that's just another hurdle that we probably have to think about and um, overcome in some of this as well is, yeah, they're, they're really good on the ground, but there are other things that we have to think about. Mm. And Allison might be able to speak more to that, but that was just one of the things that came up in one of our projects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was uh, I was going to mention that as well. Um, but I think also, yeah, the time is now. I think that um, at least just from what I've seen, you know, I mentioned Texas Parks and Wildlife already had their drone flying out. And I know they have drones for other projects in the department as well. Um, so I think that a lot of agencies are starting to acquire drones for all sorts of different projects. Um, and I have also seen that issue with the American made drones. And that was part of my project as well. Um, mine's funded, you know, by a government state agency. Um, so we could, we needed a American made drone and we got one and it, did not work as well as uh you know our dji drones unfortunately mm. it crashed um really early into my field season and and wasn't really repairable so luckily texas parks and wildlife had an old dji drone that was kind of grandfathered in before the rule and i was able to use that for the rest of my field work but i think I think that's kind of the big, the big issue that a lot of the agencies are facing is just that new rule. But I think they made that rule in like 2019 or 2020. I could be wrong on that, but I feel like it was fairly new. Um, so I think that that's kind of a big hurdle that a lot of people are trying to jump through and finding good quality American-made drones that are you know up to par with some of the other companies i guess for anybody out there developing drone technology this is a great <laughs> opportunity it's a business opportunity for you to support yeah. conservation through drone technology development so <laughs> yeah and there's a lot of opportunity out there i mean you think about we're talking about application but you think about mapping and those mm -hmm. type of things i mean there's 
there is a lot of opportunity for drones there. I mean, you think about if you have a, a mapping software on your phone that you utilize for aerial imagery or any of those type of things, the, now that it can be done with a, the drone, it's quicker. You can get more updated information in a timelier fashion. So there's mm-hmm. there's really a lot of opportunity there. You know, we're think we talk about prescribed burning and um, how it's how drones are used in the actual burn itself, but also the evaluation of a burn. You know, you think about mm-hmm. some of those large scale burns. What's the opportunity to fly over with lidar or some other um, technology that can show, hey, this area burned well, this area didn't, you know, show the mosaic within there just so that we can better our practices on the ground. So, you know, we're just touching on a couple things here today, but there is a lot of opportunity that's out there. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll hear more about this topic. We might have to do another podcast about it. Um, I feel like the like drones in for like wildlife uh, law enforcement is could be its own podcast in and of itself. Uh, but um, I really appreciate you guys taking the time to come talk with us and uh, hopefully we'll get some more um, updates on this kind of work. And um, I guess, is there, uh, do you guys have any, any other closing thoughts, ideas that you, you felt like we didn't cover that, that should be covered? Uh, I don't really have anything. Um, other than to say, you know, we're talking about this with NWTF here uh, with Allison at a university working with a state agency. We've mentioned the Forest Service and some other things like that. And I, I think it's important to highlight the partnership nature of mm-hmm. all of this when you think about everybody coming together around something that may be a little bit new. Um, there may be some things that a nonprofit can offer that a state agency can't and vice versa or a university. So all of these groups working together um, as something new comes into the conservation realm, uh, ultimately for the benefit of wildlife. I, I just don't want us to miss that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. All right. Well, um, I guess with that, we'll uh, thank you guys again. And um Hopefully we'll talk soon. Thank you all for listening to another episode of the Turkey Call All Access podcast. We will include some of the articles mentioned in this podcast in the show notes. We also wanted to let you all know about a really cool membership promotion that we have going on. um, And that's our limited edition retro gun sleeve. It features an iconic camo pattern that has the six wild turkey subspecies. It was drawn by award-winning artist David Mass and former NWTF CEO Rob Keck, both of whom were instrumental in designing the original pattern with Bob Allen in the mid-1980s. So for only $65, um, you get the gun sleeve, your NWTF membership, the Turkey Call magazine, which is fantastic, and all of the other normal benefits that come with having an NWTF membership. We'll include the link for that in the show notes as well. Um, There are limited quantities of that. So if you want to get a hold of that, definitely go ahead and jump on that before they're gone. We hope you can enjoy your summer and we look forward to talking more on the next episode.
Hey guys, this is Aaron with The Hunting Public. Each spring we head to the woods chasing turkeys and one overlooked product that we use religiously is Sawyer permethrin. We've used it for years to keep ticks off of us and it's worked extremely well. We don't like messing around with Lyme disease, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, anything like that. So I would highly recommend if you're a spring turkey hunter spending any time in warmer climates in the outdoors to use Sawyer permethrin. Learn about their advanced insect repellents and family of technical lightweight water filters at Sawyer.com. Under the visionary leadership of founder Johnny Morris, Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's is leading North America's largest conservation movement. Their partnership with the National Wild Turkey Federation is a match made in heaven for hunters across America. The Save the Habitat, Save the Hunt initiative continues to be a resounding success, with more than $6 million provided for conserving wildlife habitat, recruiting more hunters, and opening more access to hundreds of thousands of acres across the nation. To learn more, go to BassPro.com conservation. Hey y'all, I'm Jason Hart, founder of Nomad Hunting Clothing. Nomad is proud to be a supporting sponsor of the National Wild Turkey Federation. At Nomad, we're bringing simplicity and authenticity back to hunting. Whether you hunt to escape your hectic work life, for locally sourced organic meat, or to socialize with friends, to uphold your favorite family traditions, we're with you and we do the same. At Nomad, we understand your gears and investments, so our products are engineered and priced for every hunter, tested in the real world, and designed to last. Hunting is in all of us. Nomad is with you. 